Chapter Twelve of Airplane Boys in the Black Woods by E. J. Crane. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve The Fight in the Passage. When Jim ran into the passage, he was hoping against hope that this was the way the stubborn professor was coming with his captured party, and that they were not so far from the entrance that it would be impossible to get any of them back in time to save the lives of the white men and women held prisoners. Glancing at his watch, he noticed that the minutes had been ticking themselves away at an alarming speed. He took a moment to look at the ground, and could easily see the footprints made by the gang. His own and Bob's showed especially plain in the soft spots, but he dared linger only long enough to assure himself that none of them led out. Everyone went in, as he was going, which meant that, if Martin was in that secret route, he had not as yet reached the hill. Running as fast as he dared, with the light of his small flash, his heart beat anxiously, lest, after all, his hunch had been a bad one, and he could not find any of the natives. He blamed himself roundly for not taking a chance to get a message to the barracks warning Captain Seaman of the danger in the village, and urging him to send a force with all speed to rescue the party of white people. Now that it was almost too late, it seemed to the lad as if there were a dozen things he might have done, and that he had chosen the most foolhardy of them all, the one least likely to succeed. With his mind harping on all this discouraging strain, his feet carried him swiftly on and on. He thought of Bob, waiting anxiously in the plane, and was rather glad that his part of the task was not sitting still while the moments sped by. Keeping a sharp lookout on all sides, especially under his feet, he proceeded and made up his mind that he would not go very far. Surely the professor had sufficient time to be near the grade, and the boy calculated he must have come into the place by some branch route which the gang had missed as they were led by the reckless red and his dim illumination. Five minutes passed, then suddenly Austin's heart leapt hopefully, for he was positive that he heard muffled voices ahead of him. Believing that the professor was more than half mad because of his ineffectual efforts to push the work of the expedition and make better-looking progress, which would place him permanently in command of the work, besides bring him honors when it was finished, Jim restrained an impulse to shout to the party. Martin was sure to resent the appearance of anyone who might attempt to interfere with his plans, and also he was well-armed, the natives had declared. With these points in mind, he proceeded much more cautiously, and at last he reached a bend where the tunnel widened considerably, then narrowed as it led over a stream. The spot was familiar to Jim, and he recalled how difficult it had been for himself and his buddy to manage with their arms tied. But before he reached the bridge, he saw the secret way was well lighted ahead. Then he heard a shrill scream and the rushing of feet, 
which seemed to be going away instead of coming toward him. Quickening his pace, he moved close to the wall, shoving along and screening himself with the hanging vines which were thick at this point. Again came the awful yell, and the boy ran as hard as he could go. A moment more, and Jim was at the bridge. Then he looked beyond to a lower plane and was astonished to see a man, crouched like an animal and running almost on all fours. His back was to the boy, and from his lips came the piercing snarl, which was enough to make anyone's blood run cold. Standing as if he were paralyzed with fear was the tall, thin professor, his clothes bedraggled, his mouth open, and his eyes staring hypnotized by the awful creature facing him. Another cry, then the professor shrieked at the top of his lungs. Behind him were huddled the little band of natives, mostly women and children, while the two burly fellows brought to assist in the kidnapping faced about and ran off as fast as their legs would carry them. From a few of the children there came terrified whimpers, but most of the natives were quiet. The crouching man gave a shrill scream, mumbled something about his treasure, his riches, and then Martin seemed to come to life. He backed away, started to turn, but caught his foot on an exposed root which would have sent him headlong, but the man in front leapt like a monkey, caught him by the front of his shirt, and proceeded to shake him as if he were a rat. The powerful hands drew the cloth tight and tighter, until Martin's head dropped back. Then Mills, for there was no mistaking the identity of the crazy fellow, raised him high above his head and smashed him to the ground, where he lay still. Horrified, the lad stood. Then suddenly he felt a hand on his arm, and Bob was beside him. "'Can we get them out?' he whispered. "'I hope so,' Jim replied. Just then one of the native women saw the flying buddies, and Austin beckoned to her to come to him. She hesitated a moment, then, pushing her children ahead of her, she made her way around the murderer and his victim. Mills calmly seated himself on the dead body, searching through the clothing until he found tobacco, and rolled himself a cigarette, which he puffed indifferently. The one native woman reached the boy's side, then the others cautiously followed, until finally they had all passed, and with thankful hearts the buddies hurried them as fast as they could walk up the incline across the level stretch and finally out into the afternoon sunshine on the top of the hill. Well, what's this? It was Bradshaw who was awaiting them, and stared in wonder at the strange group. Help us get these people back to the settlement, Jim said breathlessly. There isn't a moment to lose, Bradshaw. Gee, I'm glad you came along. Wanted to have a look at your friend Mills, Bradshaw told them as he proceeded to help. Guess I missed the lad, for I didn't find him, he added. It took only a few minutes to tumble the majority of the natives in the bigger cabin and three into the helicopter. The engines were started, and the planes raced in a circle, 
hovering in the air to learn where they were going. Then Jim set the course, and putting on all the power he dared, raced the big machine as she had never been raced before, through the heavens toward the settlement. They had gone a little over halfway when the clock in the dial board announced that the time limit was up. Austin verified it with his own watch and bit his lips anxiously. He did not give up hope, but prayed that Howard or Don, or perhaps the doctor, would be able to persuade the natives to give them a few minutes' grace. He glanced at Bob, whose lips were set, and his eyes scanned the route as far as he could see. Finally, three minutes later, he made out the winding river, and soon could see the settlement. To his joy, he noted that the little group were standing almost as they had been left, near the boat, with Howard seated before his engine, and the white women and young people nearby with their native guard. As they zoomed at top speed, the white men turned their faces upward. The engines were shut off, the two machines glided gracefully to the ground, the native passengers shouting gleefully to the members of their families. Quickly the men who had been so determined on revenge rushed forward and caught their loved ones in their arms. Presently Jim was out of the machine, and he saw Donald standing near him, a watch in his hand. "'I find that you have a half-minute to spare,' he remarked. "'Yes?' "'Exactly. I held my watch, which is a new, accurate timepiece, and while I did not object to dying when the three-quarters of an hour was up, I did object to such an unpleasant ending to the lives of my esteemed parents. It is possible, of course, that the hand stopped occasionally.' "'Barely possible,' he grinned. "'Oh, I was blue when I saw how the time had passed,' Jim said. "'Expect you were. Don't know that I should have cared to change places with you.' Then followed explanations from all concerned and unconcerned. Bradshaw learned why he had been urged to nearly tear the wings off his plane, and when the danger was past, the natives awkwardly tried to thank the buddies by presenting them with gifts, while Mrs. Harding nearly went into hysterics, which the doctor hastened to bring her out of with a good shake. Buck up! Buck up! Where's Martin? he asked Bob. Mills met him in the passage and killed him. The party looked sober. Twice you boys came through the black woods, but Martin, who forced himself under the butterflies, met destruction before the change of the moon, said Donald quietly. That's right, Jim nodded, but it looks to me as if the curse of Bloody Dam was made so that fellows who aren't evildoers may pass unharmed even through the black woods. Perhaps that is so, Donald answered, then went on with a smile and perhaps a kindness rendered a hunted lad named Nsina and his uncle brought a blessing so great that against it the curse is not effective. Perhaps, chuckled Bob, then added softly, I don't mind telling you that we were mighty happy at having met that lad at my uncle's farm. 
Suddenly his mood changed. When do we eat? There's food in the basket, Mrs. Seaman answered. You boys must be hollow as drums. She made a brave attempt to shake off the horror of the hour through which she had just lived, and Barbara Harding came to her aid. Let's brace up, she urged. We'll all feel better when we have had something to eat. Suppose we take the food and eat it on board of the boat on the way home, Mrs. Harding suggested. I feel as if I cannot leave this place too quickly. Her face was white, as if she had suffered a long illness, and her eyes rested upon her daughters, who were safe, but she dreaded remaining with them in the encampment where the white people were so greatly outnumbered by the natives. This plan was accepted by all of them, so they made hasty preparations to depart, while the natives, the more reasonable ones, realizing that their act might bring serious difficulties to the tribes, pitched in to help, and many of them ran to their own quarters to bring presents as peace offerings. We feared our own women and children were in danger or dead, one reminded Mrs. Seaman, who promptly held out her hand to them. I understand, she said kindly. You need have no further fear from Professor Martin. He brought about his own punishment, and I am happy that your families are safe. The man bowed low before her. We are your servants he answered, but could say no more, for at the moment the air was filled with the thunder of many airplane motors racing nearer and nearer. The eyes of the flying buddies turned instantly to the sky, and were astonished to see twelve tiny specks in a perfect V formation, racing without deviating an inch from their formation, high in the blue heavens. Quickly the boy took out his handkerchief, broke a twig, and tied the corners to make a flag. Fix yours the same way, buddy, he said crisply. The planes were growing at an amazing speed into huge shapes as their pilots crowded on every ounce of power. The boys wondered how the captain could have learned of the trouble, for as far as they knew, no one had informed the soldiers. But here they were, and his heart sang with thankfulness that they would find peace and quiet, instead of death and destruction. Here you are, Bob handed over his flag handkerchief, and Jim ran with the improvised pair of signals to an open space where the natives stared. He marveled at the formation of the thundering machines, one of which he saw was a bomber, and at least two equipped with machine guns. They were swooping now almost to the bend in the river, so Austin waggled a message to the pilots and hoped they would all understand the scout code. All okay, all okay. He waggled, and instantly the leader's nose shot up. His hand went to the side of his cockpit, and his men followed him in a steep climb, after which they zoomed high, circled, while Jim went on talking to them with the flags. Everybody is safe. No one hurt. All okay. The machines made two turns above their heads. Then the engine of the leader's plane was throttled, and he glided like a great bird to the ground, made an admirable 
three-point landing and stopped. Instantly, a man leapt out of the cockpit and started forward. "'What's the matter?' he demanded. "'It's my husband! My husband!' cried Mrs. Seaman. And she ran to meet him. A moment he held her close, then braced his shoulders and faced the others. "'A native sent a message that the village had been attacked, and you were all going to be burned to death,' he gasped. "'We might have been, but we are not,' Dr. Manwell answered. "'Thank God you are safe, but what was the idea?' the captain persisted. He had to shout because the planes were still racing near enough so that they could, too, swoop down if there was any sign of danger." Martin got a crazy idea that by kidnapping the natives' families he could force the men to push forward the work he was doing and enter sections of the forest, which they feared. "'Great heavens! Was he insane?' Seaman exploded. "'I should not be at all surprised,' the doctor answered, then went on. "'Whatever ailed him, he has already paid the price of his folly.' The natives thought that their wives and children had been killed or would never come out of the black woods, so they came back with other tribes bent upon revenge. We can hardly blame them. They happened to find us all here, took possession of the weapons in camp, and before any of us realized the danger, they surrounded the women. Seaman's lips were set in a tight line. I was busy attending to the pilot who has a bad infection, so did not know what was happening until I heard my wife scream. We were all surrounded. Then Howard, who had our young American friends on a tour of inspection, appeared in the boat. Fortunately, the lads had bombs in their pockets. Bombs? Yes, and more in the boat, the doctor answered emphatically as if it was quite usual for American boys to go about with explosives. The natives were reasonable, and the buddies promised to bring the women and children back. They did, and all is well. Thank heavens for that. Let us all forget it, dear, Mrs. Seaman urged her husband. The men were frantic with fear for their families, even as you were just a little while ago and we cannot blame them for trying to retaliate. None of us was hurt, and now you find us quite safe. Surely, the captain agreed. Then he saw Bradshaw. How did you happen to be here? he asked. I was looking for Mills, saw the expedition plane instead, and hung about to learn what was doing. After that, I did pilot duty and turned the helicopter into a passenger plane. The Canadian grinned cheerfully, then added, I take it that further details of the exploit can be made later. All right. Now, doctor, about that pilot. Should he be taken to a hospital? I'll take him to my house and look after him for a few days if you have no objection. I do not believe that he is in danger but it will be just as well if he has good care for the present. Suits me, answered Captain Seaman crisply. Then he turned to his wife. Care to hop home with me, dear? I should like to, she smiled at him. Before we start, 
I wish that you would assure the natives that you will not punish any of them. Of course, he agreed. He called some of the leaders together, and when they were assembled, he shook hands with everyone. Speech-making was out of the question because of the noise, and the tribesmen held up their hands as a sign that they were eternal friends. After that, it was arranged that the doctor, his wife, Donald, and the invalid pilot should be taken back to town in the community's huge plane with the flying buddies, or one of them at the stick. Mrs. Seaman was to have a place in her husband's machine. Mrs. Harding and her daughters would fly with Bradshaw. Presently, all were ready except the captain, who paid a brief visit to the natives' quarters, reassured them of his friendship, and ate salt fish with them. When that ceremony was completed, they came with him to join his party. A bit later, the planes were ready. The big one led off with its passengers and the sick man. Bradshaw followed, and last came the officer's ship. They rose swiftly. The British planes circled about them, received their orders by signal lights flashed in colors, and fell in behind the others, while the officer again took the lead, heading in a beeline for home. Jim was as excited as if he were a part of some grand maneuver, and tried hard to keep properly in the formation with his huge plane, which must have looked a bit odd racing among the other slim, efficient planes of the British government. The boy glanced at his passengers, who seemed to have completely forgotten the dangers through which they had passed, and were thoroughly enjoying themselves and the trip. Bob was, of course, beside his buddy, and the two exchanged delighted glances. Austin wondered what his brother would say if it were not so noisy, but later, when they came down in the field's runway, the younger boy grinned widely. "'I've had as grand a time as a bob-tailed cat with a kettle of fish,' he announced. "'Wouldn't have missed it for a million. "'What I want to know is where you boys got those bombs,' the captain said as he hurried up to the machine. "'If you find out, we'll pin a horseshoe on you,' Bob promised with a laugh. "'Didn't you have a blooming thing?' "'Surely,' Jim replied gravely. "'My fists and an electric light flash.' "'Come along in. I want the rest of the story,' the officer chuckled. "'And like the little boy by the cookie jar, you won't be happy until you get it,' Bob said. Just then a pair of orderlies appeared with a stretcher. The pilot was carefully lifted out and taken off toward the doctor's home. "'I shall send congratulations to Mr. and Mrs. Austin on the splendid conduct of their sons,' Dr. Manuel began, but Jim cut him short. "'When Dad hears of Donald's trick with his watch, sir, he will keep the wires buzzing congratulating you and Mrs. Manuel. We were over four minutes late,' Jim said. Bob laughed and changed the subject abruptly. "'I say, I'm as hungry as a flock of lions. When do we eat?' he demanded, and the party started quickly for the house and the larder, lest the young fellow devour them all then and there. 
End of chapter 12. End of Airplane Boys in the Black Woods by E. J. Crane.